Um, I want to, uh, to tell you that it's been a number of years since I've, uh, since I've, since I've spoken here, and I, I was reminded of that as I was preparing for, for this, this sermon, something that I observed uh, about 10 years ago. I was at another church, and that Sunday morning, uh, there was a guest preacher, and uh, he spoke, and he said some things in the sermon that we knew, the congregation, you can see, sort of gasp, you know, as he said these things, because we knew that our, our normal pastor would never say those things, right? <laughs> and so uh, he, uh, you know, the service was over, and the next week our normal pastor came back, came back. <clears throat> And he started uh, by saying, I am, I am grateful for the plane that brought Brother Jones to us, and I'm grateful for the plane that took him home. <laughs> so I was wondering that maybe, you know, it's been so long that, that uh, I had said something. But I want to also give two affirmations to, to, to the congregation. Uh, number one, I so appreciated your singing this 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 morning it was it was robust and delightful to to hear hear you sing i don't travel a, a whole lot around the country but I, you know i travel every now and then and you'd be surprised how many church of the mumblers there are around the country right uh, yeah they just you know I'm, I'm happy to be here you know it's just just it's great that, that. so i'm thankful for, for you and and for the uh the heart and the spirit that you, that you bring. I'm also thankful for your emphasis on mission. The mission matters to you. And uh, you, you see it from the time you walk in to the international con uh, connections that, that you have here. The mission matters to you, and I'm thankful for your continue, uh, continued support of that. I want to read a passage uh, to you from Luke chapter 3. If you turn there with me. You have a Bible. I'm going to read this morning from uh, the New Revised Standard Version. I think you have the ESV, but uh, we'll, we'll manage along together. Turn to Luke chapter 3, and we want to start in verse uh, 10. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this gathering this morning, gathering of, of saints and sinners. We're thankful uh, that you see us as both at the same time, that we are justified by grace through faith. We're thankful, Father, for your word, which encourages us and gives us strength. Help us to take it into our hearts and to be enlightened and encouraged. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, the assignment I was given by Stan was, to put it mildly, challenging. <laughs> 
You know Stan is a creative person, and uh, that showed in the assignment that he gave me to, to preach this, this morning. This sermon is the second in a three-part series based on Galatians, chapter 4, and centered on the phrase, the fullness of time. This second sermon in the series is supposed to examine what this phrase means to the Gentile world. So far, so good. <laughs> but then the assignment takes it to the next level by asking me to relate this to the season of Advent. This is the third Sunday of Advent, and in most parts of the Western tradition of Christianity is associated with the theme of rejoicing, with the theme of joy, but also with the theme of repentance. It remembers the mission of John the Baptist, the great forerunner of Jesus Christ, the preacher of repentance, and his connection with Advent. Now, that's a challenge for me. It's also a challenge because this congregation is well known for its commitment to social justice. So I had to ask myself, what can I say that will extend that commitment even further than it has already? Now, if that wasn't enough... <laughs> I got another email from Stan <laughs> that more or less said, by the way, you need a secondary scripture as well. <laughs> so let's add this all up. <laughs> Preach the second part of a three-part series, <laughs> which you didn't create yourself. <laughs> Preach it to a congregation committed to social justice, and they want a ton of Bible exposition on top of all of that. <laughs> This ain't going to be easy. The centerpiece of the sermon is this. If we understand that our own repentance emerges from our encounter with God's action in time and history, then our presentation of the gospel to the world that does not know Jesus will be sharper, clearer, and more urgent. If we understand our own repentance, that it emerges from our own encounter with God's action in time and history, then our presentation of the gospel to the world that does not know Jesus will be sharper, clearer, and more urgent. I think that we are all familiar with the phrase, what you don't know won't hurt you. Have you heard that before? It's another way of saying ignorance is bliss. According to the Oxford Dictionary of Proverbs, the oldest recorded version of this in English uh, comes from 1576. And it goes like this, so long as I know it not, it hurteth me not. <laughs> Sometimes it is said as, what the eye don't see, the heart don't grieve over. <laughs> if you don't know about a problem or a misdeed, you will not be able to make yourself unhappy by worrying about it. During the term of, uh, of Margaret Thatcher in England, uh, one of her cabinet ministers was involved, cabinet ministers was involved in a, in a scandal, and he explained to the press that he hadn't lied, but that he had been economical with the truth. <laughs> we say it in our own political culture as plausible deniability. Well, the title for this sermon today is, What You Don't Know Will Help You. What you don't know will help you. We all operate from things that we don't know. I don't know how sausage is made. <laughs> and they tell me you don't want to know. Just enjoy, right? 
But there's some other things that you probably didn't know that might help you. Did you know that rubber bands last longer if you keep them in the refrigerator? Who knew? You can use peanut oil to make dynamite. <laughs> the average person's left hand does 50%, 56% of the typing. Right? You've got two hands, but this hand does 50% of the work. A carpal tunnel, they might explain that, I don't know. A shark is the only fish that can blink with both eyes. Now, that might help you. I mean, you're in the, you're in the, you know, the shark cage opens up, and you got to know which way should I turn, you know. <laughs> Wait for the blink and then go. <laughs> what the gospel is saying, however, is that this is something, here's something that you didn't know, and now is the time to know it. This is something you didn't know, and now is the time to know it. It seems to me that we can translate the gospel into language which is intriguing or attractive and raises the curiosity of those who don't know Jesus by saying, what you don't know will help you. So let's start in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, in Galatians, uh, the book is addressed to uh, Paul's converts who are in a region of Central Asia, uh, uh, Central Asia Minor, that Paul had passed through on his era and his area on his second missionary journey, and again on his third journey. And he established churches in, in Lyconia and Pamphylia, Iconium, City and Antioch, Lystra and Derby. And the new Christians whom Paul is addressing, he writes this letter to them after he's established these churches, were converts from, from paganism. And they were now being enticed by other missionaries who've come after Paul to add to their Christian faith observances of Jewish law, including the right of circumcision. Add this to the cross of Christ as a means of salvation. These interlopers insisted that on the necessity of following certain precepts of the Mosaic law, Mosaic law along with faith in Christ. They were also undermining Paul's authority, asserting that he had not been trained by Jesus himself and that his gospel did not agree with that of the original and true apostles in Jerusalem. And they had kept converts in Galatia, kept from them the necessity of accepting circumcision and other parts of the Jewish law. Now, when Paul learns about this situation, he wrote, he writes this letter, defense of his apostolic authority and to correct his understanding of faith. And he set forth the unique importance of Christ and his redemptive sacrifice on the cross, the freedom that Christians enjoy from the old burdens of the law, and the total sufficiency of Christ and of, of faith in Christ as the way to God and eternal life. Now in chapter 3, Paul argues that God's promises to Abraham proceed and take priority over the law. The law, he says, served its purpose holding a, a certain, he says, custodial function that now has been replaced by Jesus Christ. He says that the law served as a disciplinarian until Christ came, but now Christ has come. We are set free, justified, and made children of God through faith in Jesus. And he says this is for the Jew and the Gentiles, slave and for free, male and for female alike. 
In baptism, he says, we all belong to Christ. We are all one in Christ and heirs to God's promise. Now, chapter 4 of Galatians, getting a little closer to our verse, Paul expands on what it means to be an heir. He says that while heirs are still minors, they are no better than slaves, for they and the property they will inherit remain under the control of guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So with us, Paul continues, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. Now I want to pause on this phrase, until the date set by the Father, because I think it is the key link to the verse that follows, when the fullness of time had fully come. Now, I know a little bit about this phrase. <clears throat> not because I'm a great New Testament scholar, not because, which I'm, I'm not, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> now, I know about it because of my own experience. The fullness of time, the date set by the Father. In 1967 or so, my grandfather died, and I was about nine at the time that he died. And I was living with my parents in Asia. We were living on the island of Okinawa. And my father flew home from Okinawa to Washington, D.C. to attend the funeral and make arrangements and so forth, settle, settle my grandfather's estate. Now, when he came back from Okinawa, I can remember his homecoming very, very clearly. I don't remember when he left, but I remember when he came, came home. Right? And the reason I can remember his coming home is because of a promise he made to me and my brother and my sister at the time. He told us that while he was away, he had settled my grandfather's, my grandfather's estate, the, the house and the checking account and savings account and so forth, all of that stuff. And he said this, your uncle and I have decided that we're going to split the estate 50-50. So that, your cousins, that side, they get half and, and I'm taking half. But he said, but the half that belongs to me, I'm going to establish a trust fund for each of you, right? You, your sister, and your brother. And he said, I'm going to give you the contents of the trust. You'll be eligible to receive the contents of the trust when you become 25 or become responsible. <laughs> now, you know where the rest of the story is going, don't you? <laughs> well, you know, okay. 16 years away, right? Because I, I was nine, so, you know, every birthday I got a little closer, right? But, you know, 25, I had all those birthdays, and 25 came and went, and I was still not responsible, right? <laughs> Finally, the only reason I got this money was my father said that he'd been claiming it as a tax deduction, you know, and the IRS said, no, no, you can't keep doing that, <laughs> you know? You've got to give him the money. So he reluctantly gave us the money. He gave us the money in one hand, and then he took it away with the other. He said, you've got to invest it over here. Right? But you see what I'm saying here? Uh, we, we know something about the time set by the Father. We know something about how parents and guardians can control aspects of our lives until the time has fully come. All right. Now, Paul is saying that you remain a child until the time is set by the Father. The fullness of time, Paul says, has come. The fullness of time has come. 
Now, this phrase, the fullness of time, is often used in a branch of theology we call apologetics. And apologetics is making a defense of the gospel, trying to perhaps give evidences or proof for the truth of the gospel. And this phrase, the fullness of time, is often used by some who say, well, that God came, that Jesus came at the exact right time in history. And they say the reason for this, we can find, is in a number of cases. The first thing they'd say, well, we need to look at something called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. So what the Romans did was they had essentially united the known world. And you could travel freely under the Peace of Rome. You could travel from one end to the other and not be molested, not be obstructed. The Peace of Rome made it, made it possible. The second thing that they'll say is that the road system, you could travel from one end of the Roman world to, 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 to the other on a highway system, which is still the marvel, the, the, the marvel of, the, of the world. Think about the way Paul traveled, right? He, he says, I preach the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum, right? Way up in, near the Baltics, right? He got there because of the Roman road system. Another reason people will say, well, this is the, the, the right time, the fullness of time, had to do with Greek language. Paul spoke Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek. The world spoke, spoke Greek. In fact, the Romans actually preferred Greek to their own language, right? They would rather speak Greek than Latin. And then what about the, the evidence of, 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 of Jewish, of, 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 of the, so-called myst- the so-called mystery religions, right? There were all these cults around the world, and there was the, a, a religious hunger. Right? People were looking for truth. And so they say, they argue, that, look, God has picked this particular time in history for Jesus to be born because everything came together at the right moment. Well, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'm not so sure. I do not want to deny the providence of God, right? I'd be a little foolish to do that, right? You certainly wouldn't invite me back if I did that. (laughs) So I don't want to deny that God works in history. I don't want to deny that God, right? But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here in this particular passage. When he uses the term fullness of time, he has something else in mind. Again, let me illustrate this from my childhood. When I was a little boy, I often, not always, but often, more often than you, I'm sure, got in trouble. <laughs> and when I got into trouble, my mother's method of disciplining me, disciplining me was to have me go sit on the steps right, in the hallway right, between the first and the second floor. And I was to sit on the steps and I was to fold my hands and I was to think of my sins and the things that I'd been doing wrong, right? I'd sit on the steps and, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, that sort of, you know, thing you do. And uh, it seemed like it was forever. I couldn't move. I had to sit there, right? And I asked my mother 
hey, about 10, 10, 15 years ago. I said, you know, you used to make me sit on the steps in your discipline. How long did you make me sit there? And she said, well, maybe 10 minutes if I hadn't forgotten about you. But there was a fullness of time there. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, the second reason I'm not so sure that, that, this, is, that this is all that really that Paul's talking about, the God's being the exact right moment in history, is because he, had, he could have used other words if he wanted to say that. The word here that he uses when he says fullness of time, that's the word for chronos, right? Chronology, chronometer. It involves the passing of time from one minute to the next, from one hour to the next, from one day to the next. It's a sequential type of time. If he'd wanted to talk about an exact moment, a propitious moment, he would have used the word kairos. You've heard this word before? So a kairotic moment, a kairos time, is the time when the hunter is in the woods with his bow and arrow. And he sees the, the prey moving across in front of him, but he can't shoot now because there are trees and bushes in the way. So he pulls his bow and he waits. And he waits until the stag comes into the clearing and then he lets it fly. That's the chirotic time. You see? Now, Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say it's the exact propitious moment, what he says is that God has been building, fulfilling history. It's the fulfillment of time, like climbing to the top of a ladder. So, where does this leave us? This pushes, now, pushes us now to Acts chapter 17, when Paul is in Athens. You remember the passage read to us earlier. And in Acts 17, Paul is more or less an accidental tourist in Athens. He hadn't planned to go there. He goes there because he'd gotten run out of town, essentially, from, from some other place. And he's waiting in Athens for Silas and Barnabas to join him. Right? So while he's in Athens, he's got nothing else to do. Right? He's walking around town, and he sees a group of, of idols, statues built up. And he becomes distressed by this, and he begins to, to, to preach about what he sees. And he says, I saw in, in, your, in, your, in your city there are many, many idols, one of them called the un, unknown God, and this unknown God I declare to you. Now, <clears throat> I want to show you a slide here. I want you to try to think about parallels between what Paul saw in his day and what you see in ours. You've seen this bumper sticker before? The coexist bumper sticker, you've seen it? And so th these are the different religions, right, which are available today. Right? Islam, Judaism, Christianity, uh, eco-theology there. Right? I mean, that, that's pretty close to what Paul would have seen if he walked around Athens, right? And we, we see it all, all the time in our own, our own culture. In fact, I was at Aldi's recently. I see some of you at Aldi's from time to time. Right? And this is the bumper sticker that I saw in the parking lot at Aldi's. <laughs> now, 
I'm a world-renowned religious scholar. <laughs> and so I saw this and I thought, well, there's some new religions I'm not familiar with. <laughs> and so, I mean, this is the truth. I went up to the woman who had the car. She and her husband had parked there. And I said, I saw your bumper sticker. Would you explain to me these, these religions? I don't know what they are. <laughs> and so, little did I know, but this is, they're not religions at all, right? This is the sign from Star Trek. Is that right, the first one? I'm sorry? Star Wars, Star Wars. I'm sorry, see, what I tell you, okay? And is that, is that the Harry Potter thing in the middle there? It's the next one. Oh, my God. That's Mazda, the one in the third. I get that one right? Okay, all right, all right, all right. And the next one is uh, Picasso, right? It used to, now it's Google Photos. Yeah, that's an old, old one. And then the following one is Transformers. Okay. Well, you know, I'm confused. <laughs> the point here, here is this, that it's not such a different time from Paul's culture to, to ours. It's not such a different time. So what I want you to, to think about is that when Paul goes into the, the city and he sees these, these idols, he becomes distressed. Distressed. This is a favorite word in our, our family now. We, we, we homeschool our, our children, and one of the vocabulary words a couple of weeks ago was distraught. <laughs> so now Ethan, you know, he says to me, Dad, are, are you distraught? <laughs> And it'd be a lot less distraught if you went to bed. This would be helpful, right? <laughs> but I want you to notice two, two things here in this passage. Number one, Paul does not denigrate the other religions. He doesn't put them down. In fact, he looks to find parallels or points of intersection between Christianity and these other religions. And despite the fact that he argues with them, that he debated with them, it's the Athenians who keep asking Paul for more, right? They keep saying, come and talk to us. They aren't upset. They don't get mad. They don't try to stone him. In other places, they do. Paul's opponents. And here, the people are courteous, and they escort him to a place, the Areopagus, where they can listen in an even better setting than the crowded marketplace. And second, and this is the point for the sermon today, Paul stresses that this is the day of repentance. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now, but now he has set a date on which he will judge the world. You didn't know, Paul says to the Athenians, you didn't know this, but I have something to say which will help you. You didn't know it, but I've got something to say which will help you. The old time has passed, the new has come. Times of ignorance, the times of being blinded by the principles and pow principalities and powers of the principalities and, and powers of the world, the elements of the world, they've gone. The fullness of time has come. In a couple of weeks, we're going to uh, celebrate the New Year's, right? And there's going to be the big ball in Times Square, right? That drops down and it signifies what? The old going, going gone, the new has come. That's what Paul is saying here. Right? The time, the new time, the fulfilled time is here. So I would tell you this, that if we want to understand our, that our own repentance 
emerges from our encounter with God's action and time in history, then our presentation of the gospel will be much clearer, sharper, and more, more urgent. One writer put it this way. We recall John the Baptist challenging the crowds who came to him and calling upon them to show evidence of their repentance. And John tells his listeners that they cannot rely on their lineage as Israelites because children of Abraham can be raised up from stones. Repentance is observable in one's actions. And here Luke is saying the same thing. Repentance can be seen. In today's gospel reading, John the Baptist specifies this. What type of repentance is required? He replies by naming concrete actions. Crowds should share their food and their cloaks. The tax collectors should be just. The shoulders, shoulders, soldiers should act justly and fairly. The concern for justice is the hallmark of Luke's, Luke's gospel. Now I will also point out to you this. That he, Paul, that, that, uh, Luke, uh, that John mentions the crowds, but he picks out two particular groups of people. He points out the tax collectors and the soldiers. The tax collectors and the soldiers are those who benefited the most from the Pax Romana. The tax collectors and the soldiers were those who benefited most from the system of oppression that Rome imposed. Don't believe for a minute that this Pax Romana was, was, just all, was all, 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 all flowers and roses and, and, and soap bubbles. It wasn't. It, was, it was, came about at the cost of the deaths of thousands of people. The enslavement of thousands of people. The Pax Romana was not a good thing from the point of view of the people who actually had to put up with it. So I would think that the message of repentance in terms of social justice is to ask ourselves to what degree do I participate in the same systems of oppression? Where does my repentance need to begin? Now, sometimes uh, before I go home in, 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 in the evening, I get, get home at you know, 5.30, 6, 6, 6 o'clock, and I sit in my driveway <laughs> And I think to myself, what is going on inside the house? <laughs> you know? I don't know. Right? But I know that at that moment, I need to clear my heart. Right? I need to repent. I need to let go of all the wrongs that were done to me this morning before I went, you know, went to work. I don't want to keep participating in that. There's a, a, a story of a man who is out in the woods. And he sees another man run by him quickly and desperately. And he sees a bear following the man running in front of him. And the man shouts out, the man who is being chased by the bear shouts out. He says, help me, help me. And the man says, I, I can't help you. And the man says again, says, help me, help me. The guy says, I can't help you. And the man who's running from the bear says, well, please, whatever you do then, don't help the bear. <laughs> the time of repentance in this season maybe could mean that we should stop helping the bear. Right? That our repentance could, could be right now, right here in this place, by taking stock of who we are and the way that we help foster 
injustice and oppression. Amen? What you don't know might help you. It will help you if it's based in Jesus Christ. God bless you.